Well, awesome, Kirk. Thanks for coming on the show. So the main reason I wanted to talk to you is because I've been thinking a lot about art generally, literature in particular, since I have a novel coming out at some point next year. And one of the things that Congratulations. I... Oh, thank you. Although I just got an unexpected uh, set of rewrites from the publisher. Mm -hmm. So that's going to take up a, a bunch of unanticipated part of my vacation. We're now recording this towards the end of December, 2020. But, you know, one of the things that I've thought a lot about is, you know, there's a concept of like an impoverished sex life, but people never talk about an impoverished art life. And I think that that is extremely widespread, even by people who want to get more out of art. That is, I'll, I think I told this when I was on your show, you know, I didn't not really respond much to the visual arts. You know, I could look at a painting and go, okay, that's nice. And then our mutual friend, Luke Travers, basically laid out like, here's a process that you can go through. Here's what your mind should be doing so that your soul can eventually be really captivated by something that otherwise would just be kind of like, a, oh, that looks interesting or, oh, that looks cool. So I want to explore that. But before we get into that topic, maybe you could just kind of... Um, fill in some of your background and how you got to where you are now because when i don't even remember when you and i met i know ari we worked together at ari actually that was the first time okay yeah so uh i don't think we met before that yeah i had a whole bunch of ari intellectuals but i don't come to my campus when i was a student i don't think you were one that was able to make it um you know conflict of stuff but but when i went to ari of course that's when i think we met there which was during the launching of the Ayn Rand Institute campus. Um, and that, so that was an interesting time. But um, so that's, I think that's when we met, I believe, for the first time. Because uh, I was in Denver before that. Okay. And I don't, you know, that's where I went to college. And I don't think I, you know, I had only met an objectivist two years before, like at the beginning of college, um, which I went to college late. I didn't go to college until I was like 23. I was actually in sales from 18 to 23 trying to, make enough money to go to college and pay most of my way through. <laughs> so that, that's kind of my, my origin in, in, I guess, meeting you. But it wasn't, you know, in terms of getting to where I am today, um, I, I am, you know, I consider myself right now in, in two fields, which is a mistake, but it's something that I'm trying to work on and I've been trying to work on for a long time. And that's why I, I have this, you know, I'm editor of this magazine, but I really think of that as like just um, – a way to put my work that I'm doing in literature as a writer of fiction and nonfiction. And then also as a teacher of literature, and like you were saying with Luke, one of the things I've discovered is the necessity of teaching. Like I can't just, here's a work of literature. Let me just give you a few thoughts. I have to teach people like what, how to even read for, you know, to a large degree. Like that's a big portion of what I do with poetry It's just, People don't, they're not used to it. It's not their fault. I was the same way. I didn't fall in love with poetry until um, Leonard Peikoff's course that I took when I was 28. I would listen to it many times, uh, poems I like and why. And that completely just opened up like, oh, poetry is something that actually can be enjoyable. Like he just, I never thought of that before. And so I really got into reading hundreds and hundreds of poems. Um, and at this point I've read epic poems and I've read a lot of stuff. And it's like, there is a, there is a training that's required. So that's one thing that uh, I think of all art is it's not automatic, just like anything that uses the mind. You can't just look at it and, and just expect it to be, you know, passively, um, you know, meaning just kind of like shoots from your eyeballs all of a sudden. Like it takes, phys it takes intellectual work, just like with anything worthwhile, I think. Well, so. yeah, I mean, yes, I, I mean, I agree with that in essence, but I think if you think the contact that people have with art, most typically is going to be in the form of popular music and TV mm -hmm. and movies. And, yeah. and it's not exactly that you have to be passive to uh, enjoy those on the contrary. And yet you can get a lot relatively passively, right? You can feel a lot of emotions just watching, you know, a film like Shawshank Redemption or listening to, um, you know, like, Nirvana or Kendrick Lamar like there's there's kind of a a it's almost designed so that at that at least 
um, a pretty good amount of value is right there in the service for the taking, right? Mm. And so I think what often happens is that people then will turn to something that's more demanding and they don't know what to do. They approach it with the same sort of thing and they go, I mean, that's, that's cool, I guess, or I don't get it at all. I mean, I had this with classical music, right? Because I was, you know, grew up on popular music and rock music. Mm. And I heard this and the only associations I had with it were from childhood on Looney Tunes, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. which is actually a kind of negative factor because you associate some of the most beautiful music with like Bugs Bunny hitting somebody in the head. But so the, uh, I think the, the, the point I was making here is just that, um, people are used to kind of a passive form of experiencing some forms of artistic pleasure. And so it's kind of a shock. <laughs> they don't even, they don't even know that there is a method that one could go through to get something even more out of more demanding pieces. Yeah. I mean, there's some, um, I, I would argue that there's levels to the enjoyment and pleasure you can get from the, imaginative intellectual life. And I do think of it as pleasure. Um, you know, the, the, if you remember when you're a kid and you may do this, I don't want to say you particularly, I don't know. It's very hard to assess the inner world of other people and how robust it or, or lacking it may be. But if, when I think about my childhood, a lot of it, I remember, um, you know, my dad was a salesperson and sometimes he would take me places, but I'd have to wait in the car while he went in and did stuff. And I remember kind of like going into this fantasy world and there was a real physical pleasure in going into that fantasy world. And I do think that that particular skill, you know, to the degree people have it, is something that has to be developed. I think to some degree you get that when you're talking about with popular fiction, I think there is a kind of playing on popular images popular ideas, popular feelings that you can kind of get skid, skim the surface. Um, you know, and I, and I, I do like popular fiction. I'm not trying to attack it, but it is in my view, definitely a skimming of the surface and it lacks the, like you can still get an emotional feeling without doing any work. And I think when you learn to do the work for more profound pieces, your ability to experience it, and your ability to enjoy that higher level, I would call it an elevated uh, realm of enjoying art, that ha starts to happen more versus when you listen to a song and it feels good and then it's gone or you watch a movie. And I, I remember dating a girl years ago and we left a movie and I was starting to talk to her about it. I was asking her questions and, you know, like, oh, what'd you think of this? What'd you think of that? And she looked at me as like, you know, I've never walked out of a movie and talked about it. And I think that's most people's common experience, even with pop cultures. You watch something, you feel it, it's passive. And then if someone asked you questions about it two days later, you'd be like, I don't know, it was a good movie. You know, the guy killed another guy. And it's, it's very vague. And, and yeah. that, you know, so I think people, even with stuff that's popular, I think even there, because they don't have the training, they don't get more out of it. I no, I agree. I mean, I remember I was shocked. So this, like my whole, you know, youthful experience was, You'd go to a movie and you walk out and be like, what'd you think? Pretty good. And then you yeah. keep walking, right? Like it and was that. It. And then I would meet people who it wasn't kind of like an analyzing in some sort of, um, how would you put it? You know, academic exercise of, I guess I have to sit around and identify the characterization and theme. And like, yeah. it was this passionate sense to untangle. What is this really about? What was driving this character? Why did he or she do this? And what I realized was, Oh, asking those kinds of questions gives you a deeper enjoyment. And the example, the example that I always give for this are, you know, something like, um, well, there's two examples that come to mind. One, it might be less relatable for people. And it's certainly not an area where I'm a specialist, but like my friend, Adam, our mutual friend, Adam is, uh, you know, wine connoisseur. Mm. And it's, if you're unfamiliar, you drink something and you're like, Oh, that's pretty good. Or it's pretty bad. It's like, you know, walking out of the movie theater and say, Hey, what'd you think of that? I guess it was Okay. But it's once you develop a context and you can really get, okay, these are the different flavors going on. This is what's working. This is what's not. This is what's integrating. This is what's not. It's a much richer experience. Or the, for me, the better example is like if I, you know, if I took a friend who was unfamiliar to a baseball game and 
let's say they knew the basic rules and they could kind of get, okay, the one side's winning, the one side's losing. That is not at all like the experience of, you know, you're somebody who understands the rules. You know why that fielder just took two steps to the left when that batter came up and you know why that batter is actually waiting, you know, through the first, but you get the subtleties, you see more and therefore your enjoyment's deeper. And I think you're right that even for like popular entertainment, you can unlock much more of that by being active minded. Yeah. And I would, I would caution like one thing about that analogy that I'm a little bit cautious about is it makes me think of that. You need to have a technical understanding of, you know, uh, cinematography and, and editing in order to appreciate a movie. And I was a film major, um, a film production major at the university of Colorado. And one of the things that I've realized is that there's this dichotomy where it's like you either just kind of enjoy, you know, movies and shut up about it, or you're this kind of film connoisseur that's like, oh, it's, it's you know, let's compare it to uh, Citizen Kane and the way that they had these kinds of dolly shots, you know. And it's like, that's, how, that's like how it's experienced for people of when you come to, you know, intellectualize it or, or, or engage with it. And that's the way I think of art is that you want to engage with it. You want to just, you don't have to know all the technical details of literary devices and how they did X, Y, Z how the camera moved and what that means. That for me, I do get a little bit of enjoyment in learning about that, but it's not necessary for just a normal person to, you know, who's not majoring and, and focusing on this to enjoy painting, uh, poetry, literature, music, all those, you know, all those types of art forms. And this is what I, when you were on our show, uh, Surprised by Art with, with Luke and Kirk, one of the things, you know, that Luke does really well, especially is, you know, going through and just looking at the details. And that's all just, just by doing that one little thing, right? It, it's not even knowing the technique of how they did it. It's just what is physically in front of you and just observe. And that's it. And, and this is true even of literature, um, you know, of, of reading poetry is like, you know, I tell people read the poem out loud and just get a sense for it. And then read it carefully and observe. What do you think that means? What do you think? And it does take a little bit of work a lot of times, but it's, it's valuable. You know, I, I, I argue at least, and I think that it's incredibly important as um, the getting the fullness out of life. Of re- and that's how I think of it is, is you know, there's that uh, line by Francis Bacon, re- reading maketh a full man. I, you know, he's talking of, about all reading, but I take that, you know, science, mathematics, reading nonfiction, but he's also talking about literature. And I take that, that full to mean that if you don't read a, a lot like literature, you're not living the life that you could be living. Like you don't have as many experiences as you could be having. And I think of all my favorite intellectuals like Ayn Rand, like Leonard Peikoff. There's another one that I love um, who's not as well-known, Richard Mitchell, uh, who wrote a book called Less Than Words Can Say. And these are all very literate people, Jordan Peterson, right? And these are all people who as intellectuals, even though they're a lot of times writing in nonfiction, they're able to draw upon experiences and bring out metaphors, analogies, you know, uh, uh, talk about characters from novels, plays, sto- short stories, poems, you know, poetry quotes, like just that robustness of the experience of life. And that's how I think what differentiates literature as fiction literature from anything else you can experience as an art form you know, in particular is that it is about experiences. And that's what I am, you know, so passionate about bringing to people because I think there is a kind of, you need a key to unlock it. And that key isn't that complicated. It's just a little bit of work and a little bit of basic technique. And you can start unlocking more and more of the great literature of the past. We'll say a little bit more though on the, on the value of that, because the, I don't, I think it can be non-obvious what you're missing, right? Like if you haven't gone through the process, like, all right, you're telling me this requires work. Why am I going to put in work? I got a busy life. You know, I, I'm totally happy just to like, you know, wish, listen to the Deftones and watch Murder, She Wrote, which are obviously (laughs) two things that go together, right? Um, Hey, you know, make integrations. (laughs) You know, what can you say about like what, what is really being added to your life by making this an ongoing thing that you're putting time into? Well, okay. So I'm going to do this. I've, I've done like hundreds of podcasts. I've never talked about this particular 
idea that I've just recently come up with. So I'm going to throw it out there and you could tear it apart if you want. Um, but it's, right. it's, um, I've thought about a lot of different ways of approaching this. Um, and one unique way is something you talked about at the beginning, actually, about the lackluster sex life most of us have. Um, most people, I'm not going to talk about myself, most people. <laughs> and so, you know, I, um, there was a line or like a, ver- like a question that Leonard Peikoff asks in eight great plays at the very beginning that I've thought about a lot. And I've really, you know, wondered like, how do you apply something like that? What's the worth of that? And the question is in Antigone, he asks, and, and you're reading this, you're not seeing a play, you're not seeing a movie, you're simply reading it on a line. And he asked the question, would you sleep with Antigone? Would you have sex with Antigone? And, you know, I, I thought about like a long time, what is the value of that, right? Well, one, one thing, one conclusion I've come up with, if we think about what we become attracted to, just take as men, right? There are a lot of cliches of how we become attracted to things, to women, I should say, to women, like the types, we, it's from movies, it's from pop culture, it's from workout videos or whatever in the gym and looking a certain way, behaving a certain way. And there's a reason why so many women try to mold themselves into that and so many men try to achieve you know, that kind of woman that looks this way, that talks this way, you know, like a movie person, like someone in the movies. And there's, you know, certain cliches of the superficiality we think of that these are the characteristics of what's valuable in a woman. But the, the value of literature, one big value is being able to, one, form your own values in that and really question that. So that question that Leonard Peikoff asks you could apply that to all literature, you know, reading um, Gone with the Wind and th- thinking about Scarlett O'Hara and asking if you'd really want to date Mary or, or, you know, like really have sex with her. Like, would that be something you'd be interested in? That forces you to, to really come, if you really ask that question about Antigone, to ask yourself, well, why? Because you can't see her, right? So that you, you don't have the physical things that you would normally, if it was an actress, like if, you know, Emma Watson played her and you're attracted to Emma Watson and that's why you want to sleep with her. Um, so you begin to develop in, in admi- admiring these characteristics, the way she's, you know, um, opposed to these moral ideas by her elders that are just kind of imposed on her. And she's very, uh, you know, rebellious against this and the way that she's rebellious and the way that she sticks to her guns, no matter the kind of threats that happen. And the, you know, the things that she says and the way, you know, I'm a young person, but that doesn't mean I don't know anything about life and that I'm wrong about this more. Like if you started being attracted to those kinds of rebellious, you know, but not for the sake of being rebellious, like with a purpose that I think trains you in the real world to see characteristics like that in other people. You know, and, and, and women, if you're, you know, heterosexual male or whatever, looking for a, a mate, if you don't do that, I think the, the problem is you could default. And I think that's what most people do is they default into what they see on the damsel in distress, you know, and that's a lot of male fantasy. And that's the extent of their desire, someone who just needs them. And I think that will lead to a lackluster sex life. And if you want that robust sex life where you're, I mean, imagine being, you don't have to imagine, but being physically attracted merely to the characteristics of a person, right? Being sexually attracted to those things. And I think that's, you know, um, I'm not saying that, you know, I, I am saying that literature can lead to better sex in that way. And I think that's part of, you know, if you're talking about like one practical value, but there's a lot of practical values that are related to that, like lesser, like friends. Well, I mean, I right? take it to be Friendships. what it really is, is it's training you in and and not training maybe isn't even the right word. It's giving you access to the world of spiritual values that are very hard to isolate in the world uh, without the aid of art. So to take a kind of different case of, but I think of the similar thing. So one of the things that you get like that can be really baffling is, you know, still life paintings, right? But um, I just talked to Luke about that. Yeah, or that's even more complicated than I want to get into. But let's say landscapes, okay. right? Um, okay. You can think about stepping into that world and how it would feel and why would it feel that way and what kind of world do I feel at home in and what would feel very alienating. And you're, when you're doing that 
part of what you're doing, I think, is strengthening your um, your vocabulary, not in the technical sense of I know more words, but you have a much richer uh, emotional vocabulary and sense of what you value and don't about the world and, and not about any particular thing in the world, but what kind of world do I feel at home in? And that's, that's very hard to do apart from art. And so I think the, the sex one is just the most intense version. It's what do I value in a soul and, mm-hmm. um, a, a, and value in the deepest sense in a soul. Yeah. And it, and it gives you an ability to see these objectively in a really clear format, which is really difficult to see. Like when you're just dating someone, when you're dating people, it's really hard to you know, see what are their characteristics? Like, how would I identify? Is this person really honest? Like, you know, to learn that takes time. You have to get them to know them for six, eight months. Sometimes I think, you know, for me, reading literature gives you those kinds of values. And in terms of the, the visual arts, I do think there's a kind of training that, like you're saying, in terms of, um, I think Rand put it in, in terms of seeing what's important because in a work of art, anything that an artist puts in there is important by the mere fact that it's included. And this does train your mind to be able to look in essentials. And with the visual arts, now with landscapes and still, you know, I'm not as nearly, you know, on Luke's level with visual arts. I always brought him on to kind of teach me, although I love the visual arts, but you know, still art and landscape is a little bit more challenging for me in terms of getting the value out of it. I think it's more pure style to some degree that you have to get into it with um, like, story visuals where you have characters and you're looking at them. For me, it, it, it does help teach you, you know, and, and train you to look at those, at the people around you and see like, is this person have that kind of sinister look to them? And you, you don't really see it, you know, cause people don't act like that. People aren't outwardly sinister or have, and they don't even think of themselves that way. Right? Like, so how do you see that this person might have some nefarious motives and maybe they don't even know about it. That, that could be detrimental because they aren't somebody you want to do business with because they might, you know, steal something or, or cut corners. I think there's a lot of people that do that and think that it's a good thing. How do you identify that in an interview if you're interviewing them or, you know, in your life if you want to bring them into your fold as a friend or anything like that? And that's, well, that, and that's, a, really that's a challenge. Good ex- that's a really good example because I think that's definitely an area where great art separates itself from entertainment because in, in in kind of popular entertainment almost by necessity you're usually kind of cashing in on certain types right uh it's okay here's the you know bad guy with a plan here's the prostitute with the heart of gold although that's kind of just butchered romanticism but yeah. it's you have these kind of preordained pre-categorized types and in if you're engaging in real literature one of the things you get is a much richer more subtle set and in that sense a much um and a deeper exploration of you know different character traits and types of people and in that sense yeah you're much more honed in terms of your ability to understand people and understand the world than if you just see everything as like um what's uh well we're in we're in christmas right so you know john mclean <laughs> good guy <laughs> and the uh hans gruber bad guy um, yeah. Yeah. And, and they richer don't, they, palette. Ri- definitely a richer palette. And I think on that note, um, there's, it's interesting to me that we're living, you know, it's this BLM, although that's not, you know, it's kind of downplayed. We're living in this culture that's kind of obsessed with racism. Oh, and just sorry to interject. I, I've been doing too much work in the energy space. Whenever anybody says BLM, I still to this day go Bureau of Land Management. What do you- <laughs> yeah, I mean, anyway, go ahead. Um, that's um, yeah. So like with with uh, Black Lives Matters, which I know has died down right now. Anyway, this is December twenty second. We're recording, um, but I, I think that still is a lot baked on people's minds to some degree. It's been a big thing, and it's shocking to me that like we it's i guess it's not shocking anymore but we have this culture that is outlawing books like the adventures of huckleberry finn which is a book i read long long time ago by mark twain and one of the things i was you know thinking i was i was flipping through it and one of the things that i was remembering and i'm getting to the point about like how people view racism and why literature i think is so critical is that 
one of the reasons people are outlawing is because of the use of the N-word and because they think that, you know, it kind of will perpetuate racism. Like that's their, their thought. But what I'm confident Mark Twain was trying to do and what he did really well with the character of Huckleberry Finn and the character of Jim, you know, as they're going, you know, who's a, a, a sl- escaped slave, as they're going down the Mississippi River and going on these adventures, is how, and, you know, it's a real serious look in, you know, a couple hundred of pages that you can observe of the transformation of somebody going from a racist who's a kid growing up in antebellum South with these ideas that black people are less than white people, that they're more akin to, to animals and, and they're okay that, you know, he has all these moral pro- issues of, should I turn in Jim? He writes a letter that he's going to do and he's going to send, you know, that's part of what he's experiencing and, and you experience it with him. And there's a revelation that I get the chills when I think about this revelation. When he see when Jim talks about how he is, there's a couple of these, but how he misses his family. And Huckleberry Huck is like, you miss your family too? Like he literally doesn't understand that a black man who, remember, they separated them at this time from family members all the time, that it literally didn't occur to him. And it's so beautifully done. And you need to see that to understand racism, to understand that and to understand that the way out of it, right? To understand what real racism looks at like, that it's integrated into your soul like it is with this kid. And that's why Mark Twain chose children in that sense, is that they're kind of morally safe because it's not their fault, right? They were raised in this environment. But how do you get out of that? Like, how do you really move into a realm of seeing Jim as a person? And there is a kind of person, you know, manness, like becoming a human of Jim throughout this book that I think is every American should read that. Like that's, we, you know, when we talk about racism today and we're talking about outlawing something like that because they think that it's going to be, it's going to inculcate racism when it actually does the, I think it actually does the absolute opposite, especially when taught well by, um, you know, by a teacher who points out the characterization and the inner, you know, consciousness of Huckleberry Finn and as he comes to that realization. And there, there's several other ones, like he plays tricks on Jim and, you know, he really, he starts to see that Jim has an inner world and he, he's sad. He's like, you don't do that to, to friends. Why would you, you know, why would you play that kind of trick? And Huck's like, oh my gosh, I'm sorry. I didn't think, you know, he, he literally over time comes to that realization. And today when we talk about racism, like the fact that we're not talking about Ralph Ellison's uh, the, the Invisible Man, The Color Purple, the, the, uh, Uncle Tom's Cabin, you know, Mark Twain's work. The fact that we're not talking about this corpus of work is, to me, a huge problem in terms of understanding what it looks like. Because, again, you cannot look at a person in one behavioral instance, and I see people do this all this time, uh, and it really bothers me. Like, I I've, have to say, I've seen somebody do this where they say, you know, there's this white woman and a black man walks into the room and she clutches her purse. And that's racism. And I'm like, it's racism that, you know, against the white woman, because you're assuming something about her soul that just because one, one uh, behavior, maybe she's just afraid of you because you're a dude, right? Mm-hmm. Like if, if I'm, you know, I think about this all the time. When I sit down at a coffee shop, I have my $4,000 laptop, my $3,000, you know, uh, uh, camera, my $2,000 phone, if anybody under the age of 85 who's a male sits anywhere in my vicinity, I'm like moving that stuff over, putting it over my leg. And so, yeah, if you look at that one instance, you might think I'm racist, but I'm not. And, and to make that assessment is a problem. That's why we need literature because we need to see the shape of the internal world of a person. And it's absolutely impossible in real life. Like and, until, the, and until you meet someone for 20 years, right? Like that, that's what it takes. And even then it's flawed. And this, Ayn Rand makes this point all the time. It's flawed. It's kind of flawed because you, your memory can be flawed. Like it's really hard. It's critical to have that objective concrete value that you can get in mildly, you know, um, amount of time, like, you know, five, 10, 15, 20, war and peace, maybe like 50 hours, but you know, some books like Atlas Shrugged, maybe 40, 40 hours or something of reading, but I don't know if it takes that long. I know it takes that long for the reader to do it. Uh, I think it's like a 60 hour audio book, but anyway, so you, you know, she mentioned this about the role of art in, in our minds is that 
and and I think we, I, you know, we just have to take it so seriously what she said. And she was, she's not the only person to say this, but it's such a profound statement that you need to visualize concretes over, you know, it's, because life isn't like that. Life is so chaotic that you need art for that, that purpose. Well, and just what you said reminded me of just a, a small thing that maybe people haven't said, but one of the things Leonard Peikoff reported about Ayn Rand is that um, she really stressed the value of, and she was speaking, I think, primarily in the context of children, but of having heroes from art versus mm. in real life, one of the dangers is that they let you down and that can be really traumatic. Whereas like, and she was, I think, speaking precisely in people who um, were viewing her as like, oh, that's my hero versus John Galt or Dagny Taggart. It's like, why would you put, you know, your the your kind of uh what you want to emulate into the hands of somebody who you can't control and have no clue you know what you're going to learn about them in a year and i mean um we've definitely seen that in the past few years of people who were idolized and turned out to be quite wicked uh in their real life um i think that's very important point very important one so i mean so that's on literature and i think that's the it's such a great art to talk about because it's the easiest to see the kind of practical value that one can get out of it and i mean for me along with music it's my top favorite um what though then but i think poetry people kind of go well <laughs> why poetry that just seems like <laughs> it's not enough to like you don't get a story out of it i mean even like epic poetry i guess you could but usually it's not you're not getting a story out of it in the same way um and it's not like music where like you know you got a cool beat to go with the with the with the you know dope rhymes um what is the what is the special value of poetry do you think um so one of one thing that's challenging is that novel like poetry used to be the realm where you get a lot of what I just said. Novels are only a couple hundred of years old. Um, you, you used to have to go to verse. And that's when we think, talk about poetry, the main difference is verse versus prose. Um, and, and so there's rhyme, there's meter, there's rhythm, there's use of there, there's kind of untangled, there's there's the tangling that they that poets do. And I'll give you an example. I've become obsessed with William Wordsworth, who was one of the early first um, uh, romantic poets. And I, I've studied him quite a bit. I'm going to continue to study him. And one of the things that he said when he was in his college years, he went to Cambridge, and he was debating what he wanted to do with his life, right? Like, which a lot of us do, of course, and he, just like all of us, he had less options. I think we have but that's a different discussion. But he, um, he was debating. And one of the reasons, one of the explicit reasons he chose poetry versus like becoming a priest or something um, is because, beca- or I think it would have been law probably, but it's because it, in his words, it forces you when you want to get an idea across to an, an audience, reading, writing poetry forces the reader to reread it and, and to really like digest it and to really work with it. Like when you write, when you read nonfiction or prose or novel, short story, even a play, there's a sense where you kind of just go through it, right? And you kind of just ingest it. With poetry, you absolutely have to work with the language. It is distorted, not in a negative distorted, but it is kind of moved around for meaning, sense, and, um, you know, getting the, the a good example of like the, the rhythm that you get from it that can, kind of puts rhythm into your soul about something is the, the uh, poem Dolce et Decorum Est by um, Wilfred Owen, I think, which you can't read the whole thing. It's not that long, but I recommend listening to it, which it has this, it's a, w- about World War I, and it has this kind of rhythm when you really get to hear it, where it feels like kind of slogging through mud, right, in a war. And, it ha- and it, that's kind of the theme, and it goes through that. Um, and there's, there's a lot of poetry that kind of has that part of it in there, and so I guess the point I'm trying to make is that it allows you to contemplate language, literature, experiences, life, wisdom, ideas in a completely different format than, you know, even seeing it with a character. Although a lot of poetry, I have to say, I don't quite agree with your assessment that it's not stories, ballads, 
You know, th- that's po- verse with story. There's a lot of narrative poems that aren't 20 page, you know, uh, uh, an epic poem. Although there are some, you know, there are some that are. I mean, take Ulysses, for instance. I mean, that's a character. He's not an event. It's not an, an action. Um, you know, the, the Lady of Shalot. There, there's a lot of um, stories that are told in them, in these poems, that you can then contemplate. And to me, that is the role of art in general. And that's something that you have to be doing. And we talked about this earlier with pop culture, where, uh, you know, or, or pop stuff like movies where people walk out, but they don't contemplate it. And so in a sense, it's almost like a useless activity that they did. I mean, it's, there's a lot of things you could do with your time. Killing time is something we think about it. And sometimes there's a pleasantry you can get in that killing time, right? For two hours, watch a movie. But for me, for something to move into art is that it becomes really worthy of contemplation. And when you contemplate it, it really applies to your life and, and you can really get things out of it. Um, you know, I think of the poem by Robert Frost that everybody knows, so we don't have to go into it, the, the road less traveled and how so many people have taken, you know, the, um, the, the side that I, I, so I have not, you know, I've taken the road less traveled and that has made all the difference, right? That's the quote that people mine that poem for. But I think if you read it, that's part of it. And that's really interesting. It, it also ref, makes you reflect on how we tell stories about ourselves when we're looking back in our memories. Like when we look at the decisions we made in the, the forks in the road, we sometimes maybe tell a story. And how life has a, an, an element, whether you agree with the sentiment or not is different, but life has an element of ambiguity to it. And, and that the meaning, in a sense, comes from yourself. That's what I take out of that poem. That's a, I think that's, that helps you, enhances your life and enhances your understanding of life and experience. Well, that's the, I mean, to, I'm definitely not delved deeply into poetry, but to the extent that I have and to the extent that I have really firsthandly seen the value, the way I think about it is meaning in moments. Now, this doesn't apply to all poetry. And like you, and as you pointed out, there's, there's lots of different kinds of poetry and lots of different values. But to me, the unique value of it is shining a light on uh, things that can go by unnoticed or unmined for meaning. And so the, uh, just one example that comes to mind, which uh, my friend Lisa Van Dam, who's also been on this show, brought to my attention years ago, is we, we read a poem. I forget who the poet was, but it was Surprised by Joy. That's William just, Wordsworth. Okay. Yeah. And it's just capturing this thing that we've all experienced mm-hmm. in various ways and drawing attention and saying like, like latch onto that, like, and, and, and get that there's, you know, like, don't just let that moment go by. Um, but, yeah. and, uh, I mean, I guess an interesting contrast though, is my favorite poem, which is Ulysses which is more just about what is the perspective I want on life um, to cultivate in myself. And let's see, how would I put that in this context? Well, it's about a character who doesn't give up, right? By the way, I'm, I'm doing an analysis of Ulysses versus a Wordsworth poem that is kind of similar in their epic there epicness. And there, there's actually an academic who's doing work on the the influences of Wordsworth on Tennyson. Um, and I think they are, but I mean, you know, what you're talking about with Ulysses is, you know, this is a character from fiction and there's this poem that this, you know, this guy wrote Tennyson. And it's a wonderful poem about this man who is at the end of his life. And he's, he's now thinking about what he wants to do with whatever remains to him. Right. And there's that line at the end um, that everybody loves that I love that, is to strive, you know, um, to strive to seek to find and not to yield as part of like what drives him as a person. But it may have been a while since you've heard that poem. And this is, you know, so like, what, are there anything that it does for you in terms of, you know, how it makes you feel or, or how it, you know, inspires or motivates you? Oh, well, so the first thing I'll say is the, to integrate with what I was saying before, I think poems can, they can capture moments or they can give you a perspective that you want in a moment. So when I think of Ulysses, it's often that um, 
you want that kind of perspective on life that it brings you in a moment. Now, for me, the the major thing I resonate with is um, there is so he has this contrast with his son, and his mm-hmm. son's like a pretty decent guy, but in effect is just you know settles for life as a kind of normal life. And Ulysses' view is like no, life's not worth living unless it's grand, high, noble. And that's kind of the, 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 the thing that I like is that it's I, one of the strongest ongoing feelings I have towards life is that I really, really don't like, um, what's the word, just conventional, uh, mm. no, you know, quote, normal, like, everyday sort of attitude towards things and people who are conventional and unsurprising and uh, not different than the thousand other of their neighbors that you've met at one time or another. And to me, it's that that poem really captures this idea of to the end of my life, I'm not going to like settle, even if I, you know, have every reason to uh, every, every obvious reason to, for anything less than, you know, if you want to put it in the poems terms, like a high adventure. But um, yeah, it, it, as somebody who, for me, the the lack of normality is still sitting in an office, you know, writing is definitely not venturing into seas and whatnot. Well, but it's that attitude. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's the attitude, and, and you can emulate. And this is one thing you can do with fiction. That you know, I talked about somewhat with um, being attracted to a, a physical partner. But there's also just developing your own character by emulating the ideas, thoughts, actions, events in the lives of literary characters, right? And you touch on this with Ayn Rand saying you should, you know, young kids or in general, you should make heroes out of fiction characters versus real life people because they'll let you down. But one of the reasons to admire somebody, and let me give you an example in real life. I had the opportunity, as you did, to, to work with Alex Epstein. And I come from a, um, I don't know how to put this, but not the most productive world growing up, right? Where productivity was really, you know, a value. It wasn't. Uh, not to say that my parents were lazy. I don't want to throw them under the bus. They worked hard. They're middle-class people. But like productivity as such was not a value that we, you know, was in the household. And so it's something, you know, laziness is something I struggle with all the time. It's a default. If I don't put structures in place, if I don't do things, I'm going to default to where I'm not going to be working as hard, just generally. By it, for me, when I, one of the reasons I wanted to work with Alex is he's one of the pro- most product, more productive people I've ever met, right? And, and in an intellectual manner. And so by just being around that, by admiring that characteristic, by admiring him, by seeing him, by, you know, sitting with him as he worked, because I got to do that when we, um, we lived in the same house for a while, that made me better, right? That made me more, that, that upped my productivity level. It's, you know, why in uh, like fighting, they tell you the plus minus equals type thing where you, you know, you should fight with somebody who's better than you, fight with someone who's the same level as you and fight with someone who's below you. The, the fighting with someone above you is to, you know, up your game in a sense. And to me, that's what the, the, the uh, emotional reaction of admiration does is you feel this, uh, you know, uh, admiration for something and that guides you toward that thing that you're trying to, you know, achieve, right? And that, you're, that this is what I want to be more like. That's what admiration is. It's like this, I want that. I want to be a better basketball player. You know, you saw the, the I don't know if you saw the Michael Jordan documentary. Oh yeah. That's kind of what he, that was his role in a sense for a lot of the people around him is he was this kind of centralized, uh, you know, here's this guy that everybody, they may kind of hate on him and, and, you know, say stuff about him, but they all admire him. That's one thing I think you got. And that upped all of their games. I think with Steve Jobs, with all great people, you see where it's like you admire this thing and you become better because of it. And I think that's true even of fiction, right? Like you could do that with fiction where you can admire or disdain. You know, I think of these as like sails on a ship or rudders or whatever, where it's like, you, you have to kind of direct things and disdain is a good thing too. Like I disdain these things. So I'm not going to do that. When I see that in myself, I'm like, Ugh, Kirk, why'd you do that? <laughs> you know, like, why are you doing this? Why are you acting that way? And we've all done this. And this is another deep 
role that literature plays is in self-reflection, which is something I don't think we do enough of. Uh, I, I assume, you know, based on how my conversations with people, it's very hard for me to get inside someone's head, of course. But I think we can all do more of self-reflection. But to do self-reflection, you can't do the cliche looking, uh, looking in the mirror and saying, I'm a wonderful person and I, everybody loves me. And, and, and it's like right. that kind of cliche thing where it's like that self-reflection. Self-reflection, I think, has to come from you see some characteristic that you're like or that you're not like and that you want to, you know, you want to attain or you want to avoid. And reading literature, now, poetry, I think, can do this as well. It can give you a sense of self-reflection. It can give you the vocabulary. It can train you in the experiences. I think, you know, to, to answer a question you asked a while ago, one of the things that poetry does more than even novels and stories to some degree is it does quickly, like, or not quickly, but it, it can transport you in a short period of time that you can really hold in front of your head or in, in front of your face that's much more difficult to do with um, a novel that will take a long time. And there's a lot to process, right? You think about like a five, right. 10 stanza poem can give you the same kind of resonating experience. Um, and, you know, I, I think when you, I don't know if you, you, when you had Lisa Van Damme, she talked about this, but I got this book recommendation from her, uh, Sound and Sense, and she talks about like the eagle. Um, and there's a poem called The Eagle by Tennyson. And part of what it's, that poem's doing is making you feel like an eagle. And that's an experience worth having, is the feeling of being like an eagle, of soaring through the sky. And that's what Tennyson does that you cannot get from information. You could read every encyclopedia entry on eagles. You can read any, you know, a whole, you can learn all about all the different types of eagles, but you'll never experience it. But poetry can give you a taste of that experience. So that's my, my overall little spiel on poetry. One, one of them. There's a lot more, by the way. But <laughs> yeah, no, I like that a lot. And uh, one question then is, you know, for people who are kind of setting out on this journey, where even to find resources that are worth, you know, going into. I'll, I'll put it in personal terms, which is I have a deep paranoia, which is not a good thing to have about like wasting my time on something that will in the end not have been worth yeah. the investment, right? So it's yeah. kind of like, all right, until I have very strong reason to think like this is a gold mine. But then the problem is, it's very hard to discover new treasures. You're, you're basically just relying on, um, now thankfully I have a bunch of, you know, advisors who help me find new things mm -hmm. and do a lot of the dirty work. But nevertheless, what's some advice on what people who want to get more out? Because as much as we're talking about the virtues of literature and poetry, what, I, what comes to our minds are the good examples, but there's a lot of garbage out there too. Yeah. Uh, so how do you think about that issue of finding things that are worth tangling with? Well, um, you know, this is a, a, the, the, a question that a lot of literary critics have actually talked about. So there, when we think of literary critics, which I, I think I'm developing myself into one to some degree, it's something that I never thought of, but as a career, it's becoming more what I, I'm attracted to. And one of the things I've I've learned from them is that the goal is not to tear apart and criticize all of, you know, every piece of literature that you get. It's actually to help teach people how to look. And um, I think Samuel Johnson said to, who was a literary critic, um, who said something like, you're supposed to make the, or help the reader make explicit what is implicit. And that's part of what a literary critic does. And part of what I mean, why I'm going into this is the idea that part of my job is to help you find good stuff. That's part of what I think and what is good and why it's good and to teach you. And then there, there have been movements where it's like there's the classicist literary critics and then there's the romanticist um, like William Hazlitt, um, like uh, Samuel Taylor Coleridge. These are major critics of, of the romantic period who completely, they wrote all this stuff to kind of talk that this is the type of stuff that's good. This is what you need to be looking at and how it's different from you know, classicism and, and so on. Now, to answer your question on a you know, more specific basis that might be helpful is, well, you talked about the advisors, but in your own life, um, you've already kind of indicated one thing that you, um, one interest and passion you already have for one poem. 
and that's Ulysses. Now, I don't know if you have other poems, but I would, you know, if you're interested, if you like that, you like that author, I would, you know, say, read more of that author. So if you like Tennyson, Tennyson wrote volumes of stuff. There's lots of stuff and you can look through it and it, it could be worthwhile, you know, read in memoriam. It's, it's, it's a little bit more of a, you know, read, I don't know if you've read the Lady of Shalom, um, you know, read his early, there's a, there's a ton of stuff. So I recommend that, um, you know, just kind of following your instincts that you like this, there's something about it you like, read that poet and, and try to get to know that poet. And then, um, you know, <laughs> I, I would say look like, you like Surprised by Joy, so look at William Wordsworth. And, you know, you, you, there's an interest of, a, if you have a small interest, a taste of it, delve into it. I think you do that with other areas of your life. And I think in literature, it's the same thing. We have a, a tendency of like, I think there's like this big scope of millions of books we can look into. But really, at the end of the day, just follow your instincts, follow what you like. Um, and, and then the next thing I would say is expand what you like. And one way to do that is get anthologies of, of poetry. And just every once in a while, and I, you know, it, does, it could be every couple of weeks, every couple of months, whatever, whenever you, you just sitting around, you, you have it on your coffee table, whatever, just kind of open it up and just read a poem at random, read, read one that just, you know, in this anthology, if, if uh, even, you don't, either, I don't, I'm not even saying uh, we're engaged with it. I'm just saying, just read it and see if anything at all piques your interest. If not move on. And then That's, something uh, will eventually pique your interest. I mean, that reminds me of uh, Luke's, advice for going to museums which is basically yeah. you just do a quick this doesn't work exactly for the louvre but for most do a quick <laughs> you know walk around find the handful of things that jump out at you as intriguing right so it's, yes and then and then really mine those and i think that yeah. um i think that's really good advice uh you know for a lot of things and um you know it's do some random sampling and what jumps out at you can be a really good place to explore. And if I, if I can add one thing to that, I would also challenge you and your audience to, if you're like me, to, to read world literature of all eras and, and try to expose yourself at least a little bit to it. And this is poetry, short stories, um, you know, uh, uh, plays as well. And this is something that Peacock talks a lot about. Uh, he talks about it in a great plays. He talks about it in, you know, the, what was the, the one I always forget the title, the, the philosophically bad, but good literature that, that one, oh, the, the survival value yeah. of a, a great, but philosophically false art, which almost all art is <laughs> a lot of it's philosophically yeah. false. And, um, and, you know, so I, I've, I've talked to a lot of people and there's barriers to, this, but I, you know, I think reading world literature is so critical to seeing, to really, you know, like if you study history, if you're interested in that, but if you're interested in humans and in, in man, the, uh, Alexander Pope said the proper study of humanity is man or mankind, right? And that's, uh, world literature holds so much of that study from different eras and different perspectives. And I think there's a value outside of just the pure getting a pleasure from it. And I guess the, the point that I'll, I'll, you know, kind of end this rant with the idea of what Peacock is talking about in particular in the philosophy of education that we all probably missed if you're like me and you went to public school where, you know, he talks about mathematics, science, history, literature as the four prime, you know, after the three R's in primary education and secondary education, those four things. And he puts literature as in world literature. And he, you know, we could talk about his reasons if, if uh, depending on your time, but that I think that is, there is a critical human value that is absolutely missed that we don't get that, you know, I just, I try to challenge people to try reading things. And I do have some recommendations for people if they need it, but, you know, try reading the Iliad. You know, this is, if you haven't read it before, by uh, the one that I, I've, I've read multiple different translations. The one that Peacock gives that I agree with is the E.V. Ryu, I-R-I-E-U translation. Uh, read the Iliad, read the Odyssey. Try, just try them, right? Just try reading them give it a shot. Once in a while, just pick up something that is considered a classic, right? That, you know, it's considered something great and just try it and, and give it a shot, really try to ingest it. And I think there's a lot of 
values that we've talked about that are there. And then there are other values that we haven't talked about that, you know, you can only get like, I, there's no, no amount of talking. I could talk for 27 hours straight and I cannot convince you. Only the literature can convince you. Only reading it and experiencing it for yourself can convince you of its value and doing the work. Yeah, I agree with that. Do you have any thoughts on how to encourage more great production of art? In other words, how to create a culture that longs after. And I don't That's mean like, my goal in life, yeah. I mean, and, and, I'll, and I'll tell you just why that thought occurs to me. I remember years ago when Luke was first starting to talk about his method or when I was getting to know him, one of the things that I told him that I was excited by, I was like, you know, if people knew how to appreciate art and they had a method, part of what it does is you stop looking at garbage because it's, you know, it's trendy and it, it builds your pseudo self-esteem and you start really going after things that have value. And in effect, if people were empowered with a better method, I think it creates a larger market. And you would see, because there is so much artistic talent in the world, um, drawn into doing things that are more ambitious and so that we wouldn't just have to rely on you know stuff that was created 100 or 200 years ago for you know the most superlative forms of music and poetry and, and literature yeah i mean that is my you know fantasy in life to kind of even a small sampling this was the whole motivation behind troubadour magazine that i'm doing where i wanted to and this has been a complete failure on my part and there's, I'm revamping for 2021 to try to do some new things, but there is a complete failure in terms of attracting writers that I'm trying to, new writers and, um, and, and publishing their work, which is something that I've wanted to do is find new writers um, who want to put out the work. But I've been shocked by two things in this experience. And, and one is um, I've been shocked by the, the amount of writers there are that don't read like world great literature and don't have a sense of that, you know, a sense of the, the writing that came before them and really have engaged with it. And I think this is true even of a lot of pop fiction today, even some better stuff is there's almost like um, an excision, a, you know, a cutting off of all the literature that came before. When you read literature of 100 years ago, 200 years ago, there always is a kind of awareness of the past and even in the style and the characters you know the, there's there's ulysses for instance you know call back to ancient greece um so so that's one thing is like helping you know I, i've done courses through troubadour where we would reverse engineer which is something i learned from the ayn Rand institute of nonfiction, reverse engineer short stories by great authors so people can understand the characterization, the style, the, you know, the way that they use language to develop a, a story in general. Um, the one that I do the most is Wakefield by Hawthorne, because I think the style is unique and impeccable and interesting. The character is interesting. The plot isn't some fantastic plot, but it's only like eight pages. And that's the other reason I choose it. It's very short. Um, but, you know, it, it, it shows people the kind of, and, and writers, the, the kind of, work that has to be done in, you know, observing reality and coming up with the language to, you know, project the kind of emotional, thematic, you know, characters that you want to do. And um, so my point is simply that that's one of the things that I want to do, but I've learned in trying to do it that there, like education has to be like 90% of it because it's, and I'm the same way. I'm not trying to say that, you know, I've gotten better, you know, I've, done much more than this. I guess I've read a lot more literature, but I'm, I'm lacking in science and math. And, you know, I, I do a little bit with history, but science and math, I'm super lacking. So anyway, my point is that developing that kind of culture is something that I'm very motivated doing, even if it's with like a small cadre of people. That's what I want to do with my life. Uh, it's why I write fiction. You know, I, my first instinct with studying the classics was that that's, that would make me a better writer. And so that's why my big motivation for reading it was doing that. And I think it has done that. And I, the, um, one of the things that is interesting about studying romanticism, which I've been doing a bit recently, especially English romanticism, but really, you know, the whole movement of what happened in the late 1800s or 18th century, early uh, 19th century, um, 
Did I get that right? The, the no, late 1700s. You're, yeah, you're so late, years early. Yeah, sorry. The late 1700s, early 1800s. There we go. Um, anyway, so the, the, um, one of the things that's so interesting is that it was this, there was like a movement of artists, some of them like during uh, Hernani with, with uh, Hugo, got in fist fights with old people. That's how passionate they were about um, their art and about this new movement is the old people were like, that's a blasphemy. You can't do that. That's, you know, you're getting rid of Aristotle and all these, you know, excuse me, you know, and, and they actually fought each other and, you know, young people beating up on old people. And, um, but what, what was interesting about romanticism was the kind of um, reaction to the, what was going on in the academia at that time, and you know that they were teaching this is the only way you have to do it this way, um, and the only good culture and, and values and meaning in life were done thousands of years ago, so just shut up and do this and there was this like surge of internal personal you know expressiveness that wanted to go to get out of it, and this was a movement now the, my point in all that and studying the movement of romanticism of that era is that I do sense that there may be something in the culture on a lesser or I don't know, something in that view. Like I personally, you know, have chosen not at, at least so far to get an, an MA or a PhD in literature, partially because whenever I look at the programs, I'm like, what the hell are you doing? When I talk to, you know, especially MAs in literature, it's, it's just baffling to me that they've not read you know, anything before 1950, basically, it feels like, mm-hmm. you know, and it's just like, it's so bad. And it's like, I'm going to spend my time with that. And I think there is a feeling in big parts of the culture. Um, I think Quillette, for instance, is a magazine that started as a kind of reaction against the academia and, you know, the, a certain kind of intellectual, you know, field. And I think that can be done in the literary field. Like if you're like me, I try as a writer, I've tried so hard to find magazines that I would be inspired to write for. And I've never found a single magazine that I'm interested in writing for, especially one that, you know, leans toward literature. So part of what I long-term want to do with Troubadour, at least the passion, the mission, is to kind of provide that place for people. Um, and, and, and that's what I'm hoping for. And part of that is to bring, you know, the romanticism as kind of the inspiration for the, you know, and the admiration for the new stuff um, that we want to do for the future. So that, that's kind of like, you know, when you ask that question of where, you know, how do you do that? Like in terms of cultivating that today, um, you know, maybe there's grounds for it now because there is a kind of a lot, like a, an annoyance by academia. There's academia has been such a stolid, you know, specialized place of, I don't even know what to call it anymore, but there's been a, a, an anger against it um, amongst people that I think there might be room for that. Maybe. I hope so. Uh, I hope so too. I mean, it's something I want to contribute to on whatever scale I can, just because I think it's um, it's one of one of my convictions is that a you know my my focus is on I want. Uh, a philosophic movement that's really healthy and that is mm-hmm. attracting a lot of people. And I don't think that that can happen, or let's at least say, I think that is much assisted by making a celebration of great art integral to it. And not just Ayn Rand's books, but that it's, yeah. but that it's a, a world of exciting ideas about, you know, technological innovations that are making our lives better and a celebration of life through art that makes each one of our lives deeper. Um, how can people follow your work, follow Troubadour and all of that good stuff, Kurt? Yeah, it's all centered around troubadourmag.com. Um, and it's T-R-O-U-B-A-D-O-U-R-M-A-G.com. There is another, apparently there is a troubadourmagazine.com. That's not me. That's from a university. Um, so troubadourmag.com. That's where I put everything well awesome really appreciate you coming on hopefully we can do this again at some point yeah and, whenever uh, you know I, I and um i'm gonna say this publicly just so i remember to do it and 
if I don't, if I forget, which I might, people have to write me and yell at me. Um, I want to link to the interview I did with you and Luke, uh, okay. where we, I think we had some really interesting discussions about poetry and about, uh, sculpture on that. So, yeah. um, everybody check that out. And, uh, until then it's been good talking to you. Yeah, you too. Thanks, Don.